How you guys doing on this uh, cool, crisp, amazing morning? <laughs> Always like to see how people respond to like when the temperature really gets cold in Florida, because like you got. I saw people yesterday, and they were like, it's not cold, and they're in, still in their shorts and T-shirts, and I'm like, bro, I'm from Chicago. It's cold. Like, and then you got the people who are, you know, they're in their, their Uggs and, and, and hats when it's like 67. So, you know, I'm liking it, and, uh, and I'm, enjoying, I'm enjoying this. And, and I, it's funny because, you know, it, it's cool to see so many folks here and, and, uh, and, and uh, just kind of all the, all the seats filled, but then... Uh, had a reality check and like nobody wanted to get out of bed this morning. That's what the deal was because <laughs> it was like the 9.30 was like, oh, little empty seats there. And I didn't want to get out of bed partly uh, this morning either, but, but I'm glad I did. And I want to welcome you guys here and thanks for spending your Sunday morning with us. Now, some of you guys might not know, um, but I have only been the lead pastor here since uh, officially September. Um, and before that, I was the pastor of musical worship. All right, so, you know, where Kelby and Lori were this morning, that was kind of my every Sunday gig. And, um, and since September, I moved, you know, six feet uh, from, from there to here. Uh, but it's interesting because uh, that six feet is a lot longer than you might think. Uh, and ever since September and even before then, you know, it, it's been amazing how much I thought I knew about ministry and how much I thought I knew about leadership. But when you move that six feet, it's like, boy, I didn't know anything. And every week it feels like something new is coming at me. And, and part of that's fine because I love to learn. So part of that is great because I'm like, great, man, this is an opportunity for me to learn something new, something new. Part of it gets really exhausting because I'm like, when is the newness going to start? Uh, stop. And the reason I say that is because uh, in September, I gave the first vision talk I had ever given to an entire body of believers. And I was struck with how challenging it was. Like it was a different type of beast for me to wrap my head around. So today, this is my second vision talk. And I'm hoping and praying that there will be some incremental improvement from the last one to this one. Uh, and you guys can certainly let me know that. But it's been a learning thing for me. And um, what I want to do is unpack, like Dan said, kind of a 30,000 foot view of, of where God is leading this community for those of you guys who don't know, we think of, we think of ministry at E3 in terms of uh, one long season that goes from about late August to mid-May. And no surprise, that's kind of when the school year runs. And, and that's just when people are really invested and, and they're focused. And so we are at the halfway point. You know, we've been in this thing now for three months. We, we kicked off the ministry season in September. We ran uh, hard and fast through Christmas and Advent, and now we're, we're at this break point. And I'm a football fan, and so you always have halftime adjustments and uh, course corrections. But also, some of you guys are new to the community. And so you maybe weren't here in September, and you didn't get to hear about what our DNA is, what our lifeblood is, what are the hills that we die on here at E3. And uh, some of you guys were here, but... One of the things we learn about you guys is that your memories are very, very short. And so uh, you're here today to be reminded of what our DNA here is at E3. What are the hills that we die on? What are the lines in the sand that we draw? What are we, we going to go to the mat for? 
right? And so I want to do that uh, for you guys this morning. And to do that, I'd like to go ahead and invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Leviticus chapter 23. And whenever you're here for a vision talk from the book of Leviticus, get ready because something crazy is going to happen. Um, and hold that as you get there. So I want to I want to go back and kind of do some do some uh, really basic information for those of you guys who call E three your home. I remember when I was sitting basically where you guys were, and it was either I can't remember if it was in this space or it was in the Mayhan space, but I was sitting uh, in in the you know crowd or whatever you guys want to call yourselves and listening to Pastor Mark talk years ago. And he said this, and, I, and I, I'll never forget it because it's just cemented in my soul. He basically said, look, uh, no church that really proclaims to be following Jesus, and that is about Jesus' business, no church like that needs a mission statement. He said, because they've been given one already. And, you know, and so organizations and churches, you know, they say our mission is to do this, our mission is to do that. And Mark said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You don't have to dream this up. It's been given to you already. And ever since then, as I thought about it more and more, I'm just like, gosh, he was absolutely right. And the mission, if you want to know what it is and what we are about at E3, it comes out of the book of Matthew, Jesus' last words to his disciples in that gospel. And he says this, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the essence. That's it. That's our mission at E3. We make disciples. And everything else we try gets subverted under that statement, right? And I'm so glad that he did that. And he also did something else to, in terms of giving us a legacy of, of how we conceptualize that. And, and at E3, we've always said that if you really want to know what a disciple looks like, Jesus gives us that too. So he, Jesus is giving us like half the, half the information on the test already. And it comes out of uh, the gospel of Mark chapter 12. Uh, a teacher of the law is talking to Jesus. And uh, the, he comes up and he says, Jesus, of all of the commandments, which is the most important? And in Judaism, there could be 600 plus commandments if you gathered in all the oral and written laws. And Jesus responds like this. Jesus replied, the most important, now pay attention to this, the most important commandment, all right, singular, is this. And he says, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only God. And then he says this, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and all your strength. And then he says, the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. If you're an English teacher, what's, what's, the, what's the problem with that statement? <laughs> Singular and plural, right? And, uh, and Jesus, I think, does something very beautiful and very intentional there. Because what he does is he takes two commandments from the Old Testament. One's from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's out of the book of Deuteronomy. It's one of the central statements and prayers of Judaism. And essentially, if you want to know what that means, you know, sometimes uh, us modern folks, we like to look at lists like that, and we go, oh, it said, love the Lord with all your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, but he didn't say love, love him with your wallet or your pocketbook, so I guess I got to pass on that. That's not the way the text works. Um, this is not about setting a list that you can tick off. This is an ancient way of saying, love the Lord your God with 
everything. One of my professors in seminary said, uh, basically what that is saying is that love the Lord your God with all your intellect, all your passion, all your will, and all your strength is another way to say all your very much. That's the way the Hebrew would read, literally. And what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your very much? That kind of means everything is on the table, does it not? So Jesus takes that from Deuteronomy. And then he takes another commandment from the book of Leviticus 19. where It says, love the, your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, these two commandments, he then marries them into one. He says, no commandment is more important than these. So essentially he's saying, if you're going to be my follower, you've got to take the one with the other. You can't opt in for loving the Lord your God with all your very much, but then neglect loving your neighbor. And then the flip side of that is true too. You can't opt in for loving your neighbor as yourself, but then ignoring the love of your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, all your very much. Jesus connects these two things, okay? So at E3, the legacy that we've been given and the lifeblood that flows through our veins as an organization is to make disciples, that's what we have been called to do. That is our mission. That is the hill that we die on. And at E3, we would simply say that a disciple of Jesus loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, strength, all their very much, and loves everyone as themselves. It's that simple. That's what gives us our through line uh, in the world as an organization. Let me show you a picture. Anybody know what this is? It is a chair, good. Anybody know anything after that? It's an Eames lounge chair, lounge chair. This is one of the most iconic pieces of furniture in American design. This, this chair actually exists in the uh, New York Museum of Modern Art. It was uh, constructed and envisioned by uh, Charles and Ray Eames, a husband and wife design couple. And they are icons of American modern art. They worked in furniture. They worked in film. They worked in architecture. They worked in visual design. And they're considered to be probably a, one of the strongest design legacies that our country has to offer the world. They made this chair. And like I said, it, it's, in the, it's in the Museum of Modern Art. It's made of pressed plywood and leather. And if you know, if you exist in the design or furniture world, you know this chair. If you're like me, you just want this chair because it's not cheap. Um, but it is an icon. It, is, it exists and, and, and carries on, and people recognize it all over the world as an Eames chair. But what's interesting to me about uh, this chair and about Charles Eames is what he had to say about design and about essentials. Because, again, you've got this husband and wife couple, and they are like I said, icons. There's a Netflix documentary about them. You can learn the impact that they had on architecture, on visual design, on art. And yet when you read what Charles Eames has to say about what he does, it's very, very interesting because these are the types of things that Charles Eames say. He says, the role of a designer is that of a good and thoughtful host anticipating the needs of his guests. 
He says this, that design is a plan for arranging elements in such a way as best to accomplish a particular purpose. He says this, to whom does design address itself? To the greatest number? To the specialist of an enlightened matter? To a privileged social class? No, design addresses itself to what? The need. He says this, recognizing the need is the primary condition for design. And then lastly, I love this. He actually says this. The extent to which you have a design style is the extent to which you have not solved the design problem. Now what I'm getting at and what struck me about this is you have this guy who creates a piece of furniture that transcends furniture that, that bleeds into the, the arena of art. And yet when you ask him what he does, he says, you know what I tried to do? I tried to design a good chair. I was not interested in designing art. I was interested in addressing the need for a human butt to be comfortable in a chair. That's fascinating to me. There's a need in everything that this world famous artist did. See, simply says this, look, I'm not interested in being an artist. I'm interested in fulfilling a purpose and addressing a need. And so when I think about life here at E3, and we've been doing a lot of that lately, I get struck with this connection between like that design approach and the purpose that we have here to do what? Make disciples. That's what we've been called to do. That's our purpose. And so what we've been doing at E3 as a staff since September is constantly going back to the universe of things at E3 and going, how does this program or this event or this function align with creating disciples? Because that's our purpose. And we're not interested and we're increasingly not interested with just being like a cool church or just being a rock and roll church or just being this, that, and the other. It's just this. Does it make disciples of Jesus? That's what we've been focusing on over and over and over again. And uh, what we're coming up with and what I was thinking about this week is that Eames talks about the needs. Design needs to fit needs. And here's what I think. And this is just me conjecturing, but maybe, maybe, maybe it's true. That I think that humanity has some basic needs. I think People in this room, if we were to drill down to the bedrock and the foundation, if you were to get honest with me and I was to get honest with you, I think there's a certain number of needs that we have as human beings. And I think that what we're trying to do at E3 is simply this. We're trying to meet some needs. And so I think that one of the needs every human being has is the need to connect with something that's bigger than yourself. I think that we all have a need to know that we're not God. Because in my life, the times that I have thought that I was God are usually the times that things are spinning out of control in my life. And so we want to create a space and an opportunity and a time for people to come in and be reminded, uh, you're pretty cool, but you're not God. There's something even bigger, even more important than you in the world. And so we invite people into worship where we sing songs that just remind us, like, this is who God is. and This is who I am. And he's bigger and he's more important, but he does love me. 
And as I was thinking about these needs this week, I was just kind of connecting them with different scriptures. And they're not going to be on the screen, but maybe you write this down and just meditate, these, uh, meditate on these this week. The scripture that came to mind for what we're doing with connecting with others comes out of Psalms. Psalm 40. Maybe you're familiar with it. Psalm 40 starts off, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the miry pit, out of the mud, and he gave me a new song to sing. And many will see and fear and come to know this God. That's what we want to do on Sundays. We want to connect you with a God that wants to lift you up out of the mud of your life, out of the clay of your life, and put a new song in your mouth to sing, a hymn of praise, not to yourself, but to God. We also think that every, I also think that every human being has a need to do simply this, and that is to grow. I think that human beings lose their way when we start buying into the illusion that we're stagnant and that we can never be more than what we are right now. I think we have an innate desire to be more than we are today in a year, to meet that need for growth. And over hundreds and thousands of years, uh, men and women have, have determined that one of the best ways for people to grow, especially emotionally and spiritually, is to do something called sitting down in a living room or just a room with other human beings and talking honestly and taking off the masks that we all wear and speaking words of life and challenge and also hearing words of life and challenge. I think that's one of the needs that we all have. And a, a scripture that came to mind as I was thinking about this, maybe you want to just look this up for yourself. It comes out of uh, Ephesians chapter 3, a guy named Paul writing to an early church. And he says, look, I pray that your roots would grow down into God. And he also says, I pray that you would come to know the fullness of Christ. And fullness of Christ is not like all the answers on your Sunday school test. The fullness of Christ is a life of love and compassion and intimacy with God and relational intimacy with other people. Paul's like, that's the vision that I have for you. To change your life and to grow. In, and he also ends, that's the scripture where he says, I also pray that you would know how wide, how deep, how long, how full is the love of God. So the need for growth. And then lastly, I think that human beings have a great need for purpose and significance. I think that we all want to know that our, our lives, but also our passions, our strengths, our abilities, they matter in the world. And I think we desire to find places to use those things. Around here, we would call that just an opportunity to serve. We used to talk about it this way that, you know, I don't know if this is news to any of you guys, but you weren't just, you weren't just saved. You weren't just loved by God to occupy these gray, cushy chairs. That's not what God saved you for. From the beginning of his story, he calls this guy named Abram. And he says, Abram, I want to bless you. But guess what, Abram? I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the entire world. We're blessed to be a blessing then later on in Isaiah 49, he tells his people, look, uh, I am going to make you, the phrase he uses, a light to the nations. 
So he says to his people, look, you're not just here to have my love, to have my meaning, to have my, my salvation. You're actually meant to spread this out and do things for other people. And then Jesus recapitulates this in Matthew 5 where he says, look, maybe you've heard this. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So we would say it. We are saved for a purpose. We're blessed to be a blessing. And at E3, like that's what we are trying to uh, examine and, and, and uh, in flesh, if you will, in this thing that we're calling the pathways of discipleship. Make, mature, mobilize, fully devoted followers of Christ. We think that people connect with God on Sundays. Your kids connect with God on Sundays. Your junior hires connect with God on Sundays. And then living out the, the value of meeting together and growing in growth groups throughout the week. We do that with your high school uh, kids. We do that with, with ourselves. And then mobilizing people. Making sure that every person in this community has an opportunity to use their gifts and their passions somewhere. And we've been digging into this process for three months now. And so we've been looking at everything we do on a Sunday and saying, look, are we connecting God with people and people with God? Are we making that, are we making that connection possible and we've seen great results. And then we, we've looked at groups for three months. And we've done everything we can uh, so far to, to make that a healthy ministry. And man, we're seeing it. We're seeing more leaders. We're seeing more people. And one of the be great blessings of my life is I get to hear the stories. I get to hear the people say, man, like I'm encountering community. Literally, I heard a guy in his 20s say this. Like I've never understood the value of growth groups until now. And I'm experiencing something so magical in, in this community thing. That's amazing. And what we're doing now is we're turning our attention to service. And we're trying to make sure that this place becomes a culture of service. And why? It's not just so that we can tick these things off and say we're doing a good job. It's because this is what we believe is our design. This is what we believe produces disciples of Jesus. That's what we're called to do. So we're taking this Eames approach, essentially, to saying, well, if what we've been called to do is produce disciples, then that's what we want to focus on. We want to fill the needs of people. And we think we can do it with these three things. So if you're hanging around E3, if this is the first time you're hearing this, let me tell you, these are some of the hills we die on. We die on the hill of this is what we're here to do. You know, and, and I don't know if you've hung around churches for a while, but it's really easy to just take a church and add things in, add programs in. You know, churches are notorious for things like potluck dinners and, and all kinds of crazy things. And we love, pot, I love to eat. And I tell you, it, folks, I don't know if you guys realize how many amazing cooks we have in this community, but I've eaten a lot of their food. And look, if we wanted to have a potluck ministry, we would have a slamming potluck ministry. But there's only so many hours in a day. There's so many, there's only so many hours that the staff and the leaders of this church have to give. And if we only have so many hours to give, this is where we're going to give it. Because this is what fills the need that we have been called to fill. This is our purpose. Amen? Are you tracking with me so far? So this means that uh, we need to increasingly say yes to certain things and say no to some other things. And some of the things that we're going to say no to are things that maybe we've done for a long time. 
But for where the staff is right now, we look at this and we go, well, but we're not really sure what the connection is between this activity or this program and making a disciple. And I don't know how things work in eternity, you know. I don't know if I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to be like sitting there and God, and I'm going to hear this heavenly voice say, Eric Case, come forward. And I'm going to like shuffle up and I'm going to stand before God. I don't know how any of this works. I'm not too sure. But if, if it worked that way, and if God called my name and he said, Eric, you are a pastor and a church leader, I don't think God's going to say, um, how many events did you do? I don't think he's going to say how many, how, many, uh, how many people attended your potluck or how many people attended the music event you had on this such. You know what God, I feel like, is going to ask me? How many disciples did you make? I think he's going to love me any way, either way. But this is the question of my life. How many disciples is this church going to make? And so we want to be as clear as we can with this. So, um, what I want to do is take a look at this scripture in Leviticus 23. Because there is a uh, connection to be made here that I think we all need to hear this morning. And I know I needed to hear it. And so the, Leviticus is like a manual of worship. Um, early, in the, early in the church, it's the third book of the Bible. And, it, and the text says this, the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Begin celebrating the festival of shelters on the 15th day of the appointed month, five days after the day of atonement. This festival to the Lord will last for seven days. On the first day of the festival, you must proclaim an official day for holy assembly, which when you do, no ordinary work. Yes, God. For seven days, you must present special gifts to the Lord. The eighth day is another holy day on which you present your special gifts to the Lord. Excuse me, this will be a solemn occasion and no ordinary work may be done on that day. Two days off, God. Thanks, we're rolling here. Remember that this seven-day festival to the Lord, the festival of shelters, begins on the 15th day of the appointed month after you have harvested all the produce of the land. The first day and the eighth day of the festival will be days of complete rest. Bam! On the first day, gather branches from magnificent trees, palm fronds, boughs from leafy trees, and willows that grow by the streams. Then celebrate with joy before the Lord your God for seven days. You must observe this festival to the Lord for seven days every year. This is a permanent law for you, and it must be observed in the appointed month from generation to generation. For seven days, you must live outside in little shelters. All native-born Israelites must live in shelters this will remind each new generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So it's completely evident, right? You guys got that, right? <laughs> so the story is, the background is, if you guys don't know, that uh, God's people were enslaved in Egypt and he sets them free. And they wander in the desert for 40 years. And, and so he alludes to that. He's like, look, you're going to have this festival of remembrance of the time that you had to wander through the desert. You didn't have homes. You lived in a tent. And furthermore, God's like, I lived in a tent too. It was called the tabernacle. And we wandered in the desert for 40 years. So he says, look, have this festival. Seven days, eight days. And so it was literally called the Festival of Shelters or the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles or in, in Hebrew, Sukkoth, okay? And so this was a major, major festival in the Jewish religion. 
Jesus celebrates this. And because it was a major festival, this was one of the times of the year where uh, the leaders of the nation would say, look, everybody's got to come to Jerusalem on this day for this festival. Not every festival you had to come to Jerusalem, but this one you have to. And when you come, literally, you're going to build a little shelter for yourself. And it's going to be a little, little structure. There were regulations for how to do it. And so if you were to wander the streets of Jerusalem during this time, you would literally see little tents and little bitty buildings built everywhere. And people would just be living, living there. Now, over time, over the hundreds of years that this was celebrated, uh, what began to happen is additional things were added to this festival. And two of the central metaphors for any, any form of spirituality all, almost are, are the metaphors of water and light. And in this festival, it was actually, water was really important because it was, uh, it was at the end of the harvest season. And so water began to be associated and rituals of water began to be associated with this festival. And on the seventh day, and, and actually there was this ritual that the priest would come out of the temple in Jerusalem. He would take a vessel and he would walk from the temple out to this pool called the Pool of Siloam outside the walls. And he would dip his cup, this vessel of water. And then he would walk back into the temple with it. And as he's walking, people are singing and they're, they're praising God. And he gets to the temple and he pours the water out on the ground as a symbolism for, of God's faithfulness. Because if God doesn't send the rain, what doesn't happen? The crops don't grow, right? And it's associated with harvest. And furthermore, there's always an association with spirituality and thirst, right? So every day, the priest goes, gets the water, brings it back, people are singing, shouting, pours it out on the ground. So John 7, Jesus is at this festival. He's at the festival of tabernacles. He's at the festival of shelters. Every day, the priest is taking the water, walking and filling it out. And this is the climax of the, of the festival so people are going crazy. The rabbinical sources say that this is a joyful, super celebration, blow out the doors, God party. People are singing and shouting God's praises as the priest brings this water from the pool and he brings it in and all of a sudden, Jesus, this rabbi from Nazareth, stands up in the middle of this thing and he says, anyone who is thirsty, Jesus says, come to me. And then he goes on and says this, anyone who believes in me, Jesus says, may come and drink for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow out of his heart. Now, another way to translate that last bit is actually to say rivers of living water will flow out of their heart. Which jives with something that Jesus says in John 4 to a woman that he meets. Jesus says, look, if you come to me and drink, anyone who drinks from this well that this woman is at will be thirsty again. But Jesus says, come to me and drink and you'll never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring giving them eternal life. So the festival of shelters, Jesus interrupts it, it says, and says, look, there's something going on here that goes way beyond God providing for us. Now, if you're like me, I grew up um, with a view of spirituality and salvation, even, that said, 
show up, you know, on a Sunday and God will fill up your sort of spiritual cup, right? So I would come to church and I would get filled up. And, and to me, this is a good, a good vision of salvation because I can be thirsty and I can be empty. And I would say, God, come and fill me up, you know, and he would do that. And he wants to do that for you. And then if I was really lucky, maybe I'd invite a friend, you know, and a friend, and maybe they're a little bit bigger than me. <laughs> or maybe they're just fans of the world champion Chicago Cubs. <laughs> and the thing about it is, is, like, God will fill their cup up too. And isn't that a cool vision of God, right? But what we do here at E3, what we are about here at E3, is about something much more explosive than getting our cups filled. Because Jesus says there's something else at work. There's something else at work. You see, like, I, I would take my little cup of salvation, and I don't know what this cup is for you. You know, this cup could represent a lot of things. Fill your cup up and get out of hell. Some of us want our cup filled so that we don't have to endure that doubt or that, that feeling. This cup might, might represent, hey, my parents told me to come. Uh, it might mean I just like to look good in front of people. And so I come. So I get my cup filled. You know? It just means I'm searching for something. But the problem is with, with cups is that, like, I can walk around with my cup and I can get really scared of, like, spilling it. Right? And I just want to protect my cup. You know, because I think if I spill water, like, God won't, like, oh, I spilled. And it's like some of us, oh, I haven't come to church for a couple weeks Oh, I really, I did that thing I shouldn't have done again. And over time, and over time, we get under the illusion that the cup just gets empty and empty and empty. And so some of us run back and we say, oh, man, my cup's empty. I'm signing on God. Give me, fill me up, fill me up, fill me up. And then we go and we run away again. But what Jesus is saying here in John 4 and John 7 is that the vision for discipleship that he wants to unleash in your life doesn't look like a cup. It looks like what? A stream of living water that doesn't stop. And so rather than being thinking that like, oh, I just come to church and get my cup filled and then I go away, Jesus is like, no, you gotta understand, what I wanna do in you is something that doesn't stop. And it fills you up, and then after it fills you up, it starts to fill your friends up too. And then it spills over a little more, a little more, a little more, and it does not stop. Because here's the deal, I don't know an awful lot about the outdoors. But I'm pretty sure streams run 24-7, do they not? It's just designed to go on and on and on and on. This is what we're about at E3. I mean, don't get me wrong. You want to come and get your cup filled on a Sunday morning? Come. But you want to see God do something crazy in your life? Say, God, sign me up for the living water. And here's what you have to do to sign up. I think you just have to be willing. And you have to dip a toe into this design process that we've created with God's help. 
God, I want to connect with you on a Sunday. God, I want to connect with other people in a small group. And God, I want to serve. And as best I can tell, that's when things really start happening. And it just goes on. And I don't know what world you guys live in, but don't you think the world needs some overflow? Don't you think the world needs like just people who just live in this space of like, no, I don't know, you know, what's, what's up with Bob from accounting? Why is he so happy all the time? I don't know. Just, I don't know, just something's just happening. I mean, the world can use your cup. But God wants to put a stream of living water inside you and let it overflow and overflow and overflow. How's that sound? Yeah. I think it sounds pretty good too. So, you guys glad I didn't spray you? So where do you go from here? Where do you go from here? I'll tell you where you go. You go out that door and you hang a left to the Pathways booth. That's where it all starts. A willingness to say, God, I'm happy with my cup and fill it up. But God, stream of living water sounds pretty darn nice too. And right at the Pathways booth, there, there are folks there who would tell you, look, here's a group you can get uh, plugged into. If, if you're doing the group thing already, they can tell you, hey, here's a service opportunity that you can get involved in as well. Because worship, group, serve. That's what our design process is. That's what makes disciples. And a disciple is a person that can overflow with a stream of living water. Amen. Let's stand for closing prayer.